0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nalbeth Coming up, a listener to the show who is a volunteer firefighter reached out to us to talk about a problem he's seen, a shortage of volunteers, which is impacting fire departments in our state. We'll hear from him and others about the factors at play and what can be done to boost those volunteer numbers. That's just ahead. First, Russia's attacks on Ukraine continue weeks after the US warned the world about Vladimir Putin's intentions. Reports this morning, our Russian troops have entered the outskirts of Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, and it's being bombarded with missile strikes. The New York Times also reporting the Kremlin said it's ready for talks with Ukraine after President Zelensky said he was ready to discuss a, quote, neutral status for his country. But the conditions for such negotiations were not immediately clear. Joining us now for perspective on this situation, on Zoom with us, Olena Lenin, adjunct professor of political science and national security at the University of New Haven. She's also an eastern Ukraine native. Olena, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, first off, uh, do you still have family in Ukraine? And what are you hearing from people you know there?
2: I do still have family in Ukraine, and you know, I have a lot of friends and uh, distant family too scattered around Ukraine. Um, you know, the situation is um, is very tense uh, and um, very dynamic too. You know, it's hard to believe that it's only been day, day two. Uh, you know, it's, in the last 24 hours alone, we have seen significant developments, major tank battles, the use of artillery, uh, cruise missiles, uh, ballistic missiles also deployed on the capital city yesterday. Uh, so things have escalated, um, you know, dramatically, and and of course, uh, you know, there are civilian casualties now, too, military casualties. Uh, people are trying to evacuate, uh, seek cover in uh, bomb shelters. So it's it's uh, it's very dangerous. It's ominous, and um, you know, we're witnessing a, a potential humanitarian catastrophe uh, on a scale unknown yet.
0: Uh, the New York Times and other media reporting that Ukrainians have piled into cars, buses, trains, they're making runs on the banks, runs on gas stations. Some people were just running, all trying to go west. Uh, so when you hear that, Olena, uh, talk with us about you know what's happening on the ground and how the citizens of Ukraine um, either are preparing or responding to this.
2: Um, right, you're right. Absolutely, people are trying to evacuate and and head west. Um, but the problem, though, is that well, first of all, there are uh, enormous traffic jams, as um, obviously there are live vehicles on the roads. Uh, but you know, at the same time, evacuations are happening while uh, missile attacks are um, uh, ongoing. So it's 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 not safe uh, to uh, to be traveling right now. You know, a, a lot of people are trying to sit it out in bunkers. Uh, so it's hard to um, gauge, uh, you know, where um, you know the, the safest route could be, um, but also, you know, the w- western Ukraine is not necessarily um, safer. You know, it, it might be uh, relative to Kyiv right now, uh, but as we saw yesterday, Lviv, the, the kind of western uh, center of uh, Ukraine, uh, and where a lot of foreign embassies had re- uh, relocated, um, also came under missile attack. Um, I think what Russia is signaling here is that they're going after the entire country. Uh, They had attacked from multiple axes: from Belarus uh, in the north, uh, Russia-occupied territories in the east, and then Russian-controlled Crimea in the south. So it's a multi-vector attack um, that witnessed a a large-scale assault on on the entire territory of Ukraine. And I think that one of the uh, signals there too is that that Russia is trying to push out uh, any foreign presence in Ukraine given that many of them had relocated to Lviv uh, by saying that they, they, they don't want any foreign involvement or any foreign assistance in Ukraine because they consider it to be uh, Ukraine to be their sphere of influence.
0: Mm-hmm. What was your response when you saw uh, Mr. Zelensky's address uh, to his nation also asking, calling on Ukrainians to defend themselves?
2: It's heartbreaking. and uh, it's um, you know it, it, they're, they're very they're desperate, um, and I, I can definitely understand uh, why uh, Zelensky would be making this address and appeal uh, to um, uh, to Ukrainians. But at the same time, I think it's a it's a very dangerous trajectory potentially, as um, you know, territorial defense forces um, are now expanding uh, to to where you know people. Um, uh, are signing up to join territorial defense forces to basically um, in anticipation of urban warfare. Now, if, uh, once it escalates to become um, a, on the level of city fighting and urban warfare, then it's, it, it will be very lethal, very violent. Uh, what scares me about it is that um, basically now there are no requirements as to who can obtain a gun um, anybody can show up with an ID and, and get a rifle to join territorial defense forces. So uh, we're, we're looking at, at a potential um, of expanding this resistance movement that the United States said that they might support. Um, so I, I think that will be a new level of violence once the, once the fight comes to the city
0: sanctions are meant to deter but that didn't deter russia from attacking ukraine so what now olena what do you want to see from the u.s and from the international community
2: um yes you're right sanctions have failed in their deterrent effect Uh, so now uh, u.s sanctions and eu sanctions mostly uh, are, um, you know, designed to punish Russia and the, increase the cost of uh, further escalation and further in, incursion or advancement into Ukraine, potentially looking at forcing Zelensky to capitulate. Um, what, what, you know, the, these developments or these expectations underestimate is that uh, you, you can't really decapitate a regime that's not centralized. So Ukraine is a democracy. Just by – even if, uh, if Zelensky were to cave in, the rest of the country would probably not buy into that, so it's really hard to deter Russia now uh, with sanctions because um, you know they had sanction to their economy. They have a pretty significant uh, uh, reserve, uh, and and they 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 seem to believe that they can sustain uh, you know the, the pressure that that had been applied uh, by sanctions. Um, now I, I think that um, the sanctions is still the right move. Um, it, we may not see short-term effects, uh, but definitely in the long term. Uh, The current sanctions are expected to uh, cripple Russian economy and um, significantly um, uh, undermine the the power of the Russian oligarchs, uh, including the political political elites. But one thing to keep in mind here regarding sanctions is that U.S. sanctions have multiple audiences. Uh, President Putin is not our only audience. We're also signaling to domestic audiences, and we're signaling to other actors such as China, uh, Taiwan as far as, you know, what the U.S. resilience is and what uh, instruments of power we have in store um, to, to be applied in other situations. So the United States here is, has multiple audiences uh, that it signals to, um, and unfor- unfortunately, I don't think that sanctions will be effective in deterring Putin, but long term the, the price of this aggression will definitely rise.
0: You're hearing on Zoom with us Elena Lenin, adjunct professor of political science and national security at the University of New Haven. She's also a native of Ukraine, her family, I believe, in the eastern part of the country. You can join us if you have a question, 888 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, talk more with us about uh, the U.S. response in um, in helping Ukraine, I understand, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars sent uh, in humanitarian aid, Uh, there is uh, uh, the expectation that there will be uh, many people fleeing Ukraine, and and how the bordering countries, uh, like Poland, uh, like Romania, how will they be able to respond and help uh, these people?
2: Right. You're absolutely correct. Uh, One of the uh, um, more direct consequences uh, that, um, you know, the rest of European countries will experience, including the United States, is a massive refugee outpour from Ukraine um, that will be, um, you know, needing relocation assistance um, and obviously financial assistance. So we are actually, um, you know, witnessing right now um, a very dangerous development was a new refugee crisis in Europe that could have in um, you know, very serious uh, consequences, and, and can reverberate around the globe, as we saw with previous refugee crises. Um, it's not just a financial burden; um, it will be a significant political and social burden on uh, on the fabric of the European society. Um, and you know, obviously, the United States um, also um, you know is um, uh, has already provided various types of assistance, including military aid. And, and one of the things that uh, and supply of weapons. One of the things that I, that uh, one of the options available to the United States right now um, is to continue providing Ukraine with defensive weapons. And they also um, signaled readiness to support the resistance movement. Um, it's still controversial. Not there's not uh, there's no political consensus in the U.S. that that will be the right move. Um, but the U.S. is limited in its options right now. Uh, you know, we uh, the, the Biden administration had signaled that. They will continue supporting Ukraine uh, diplomatically, financially, militarily, but um, you know, any direct involvement of U.S. troops uh, is is absolutely ruled out. And in that way, the United States is quite limited uh, from what it can do for Ukraine. Other than um, the, the the choices here are uh, to simultaneously help strengthen Ukraine and weaken Russia at the same time. So if if we can find that balance where um, you know Ukraine can be. Best- uh, stronger and, and Russia can be weaker at, at a, on a level that could potentially prevent further escalation and bring both parties to the negotiating table, um, that that could be uh, potentially a, a, an off-ramp from this situation. We
0: heard uh, President Biden again reiterate that U.S. forces will not engage in this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Uh, but what will stop Putin? Uh, you mentioned there's a long-term strategy that's needed. Uh, you know His belief he wants to reestablish the Soviet Union. Uh, also looking at, and, and looking at his sights on, on other uh, NATO uh, countries uh, that were once part of the Soviet Union. Olena, how do you see this play now?
2: Um, th- there is a great question that, that is on everybody's minds right now what will stop Putin and how far will he go? right? Because you know, he's, it's not just about Ukraine. In his speech, he made it very clear that the breakup of the Soviet Union um, you know, obviously was one of the more tragic historical events in his opinion. but um, he wants something he, he said something even more interesting that uh, countries that declared pro- uh, proclaimed independence, um, after the Soviet Union collapsed, um, uh, are basically illegitimate. That you know the the independence that they acquired at that time um, was is not um, uh, recognized by Russia as legitimate. So that could potentially um, you know that puts um, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia in a very interesting situation because now there's a lot of anxiety among our NATO allies on the eastern flank of NATO whether they might potentially be the next target, given what uh, Putin had communicated to the world. And I think we had long downplayed the seriousness of Putin's um, HISTORICAL REVISIONISM AND HIS VIEW OF A NEW WORLD ORDER, BUT I THINK THE LAST FEW WEEKS uh, OBVIOUSLY ADDED A LOT MORE CREDIBILITY TO uh, what, um, HOW SERIOUS HE IS ABOUT HIS THREATS. AS FAR AS WHAT CAN STOP HIM, PUTIN DOESN'T REACT TO uh, RHETORIC or, OR DIPLOMACY, HE REACTS TO ACTIONS. WHAT HE NEEDS TO SEE IS WITHDRAWAL OF AMERICAN SUPPORT FROM UKRAINE. Um, he, uh, he, will need to, HE WILL NEED UKRAINE TO uh, FORMALLY uh, DECLARE NEUTRALITY um and give up on its ambitions of western integration and he wants to see uh, western uh, nato infrastructure removed from ukraine and um he wants military aid and economic aid to be discontinued so he wants um foreign involvement in ukraine to be um nullified and and to be removed now unfortunately those are those requ- requirements are non-starters for ukraine Um, And uh, for the United States and and Western allies, uh, those are also very important principles that we don't want to – we're not willing to compromise on. Um, But unfortunately, I think for for Putin to back down, he will need to be either stopped militarily, which I don't see it as an option because nobody wants to get involved um, in a direct military confrontation with with Russia, or um, he wants to see significant concessions on uh, Ukraine's pro-Western orientation and potentially require some formal recognition of Ukraine as a neutral country, which will mean no NATO ambitions and no military support. Mm. As we look to how this, uh, again, is impacting
0: the world already, uh, people are seeing gas prices going up, market instability, but also when we think about uh, Russia's uh, playbook and when we think about cybersecurity and uh, their pattern of disinformation, you know, how worried uh, should the West be here?
2: I think that's one of the domains that will directly affect uh, you know us here in the United States, but and also other uh, Western countries, is in the cyber domain. You're absolutely right, um, and information domains. I think um, Russian cyber attacks could potentially cripple electronic infrastructure in the United States um, and target private companies, as we have seen. Now, one of the uh, difficulties that uh, that particular um, threat presents is that. Uh, we're not sure how to how the United States will respond. You know whether we will respond with counterattacks or you know impose more sanctions, because that could potentially put uh, Russia and the United States in a uh, at, you know in a situation where they will be basically uh, involved in a cyber war. Um, and we're not sure. We don't have the the, the legal infrastructure to um, to have a, a specific protocol as to how to address those cyber attacks, especially given the how tense the situation is in Ukraine. Um, so I, I think it does have. You, you're right. Um, you know the situation in Ukraine and the standoff with Russia. Economic penalties on uh, on Russia will reverberate worldwide. It will you know obviously affect global economy. Um, you know, potentially create a refugee crisis. But I would be most worried about an um, in, in increase in uh, disinformation campaigns and increase in cyber attacks, especially leading up to the midterm election in the United States. Hmm.
0: Elena, I understand that you were planning on visiting Ukraine until there was a concern uh, coming out that um, that Russia was planning a potential invasion. When was the last time that you returned? And you know, when you're thinking about your family and loved ones that are still there, what's on your mind?
2: I was actually going to be in Ukraine now. If we were to have this uh, talk uh, under different circumstances, I would be in Ukraine right now. I was supposed to fly to Ukraine on February 16th. Uh, That was the day when the Biden administration disclosed as a potential start of the um, invasion. I I think that 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 intelligence was accurate um, and the disclosure was the right strategy. And I think uh, Putin had to recalibrate based on these public disclosures. Um, But, you know, I I was um, uh, given the the situation on the ground. I had to cancel my flight um, because I I took those, um, you know, those threats very seriously. And and I attach a lot of credibility to the U.S. intelligence. Um, even though a lot of people in the world including in ukraine downplayed um the um the accuracy of of that you know of those predictions um so i had to cancel my trip um and you know in retrospect, of course that, that was the right decision um i worry that i uh, what worries me now is that um you know i don't i don't know uh, where the things are where things are headed necessarily but I, i'm worried about not being able to travel for a while um i'm also worried about you know, my family not um, you know being able to uh, travel to other parts of Ukraine and, and see other uh, family members because I'm expecting that there will be a um, – uh, you know martial law obviously is in effect, uh, but also checkpoints might be installed uh, throughout the country, uh, further inhibiting movement and further uh, sort of separating and polarizing people and isolating people. So I worry about all those things, and and uh, I um um I you know my heart goes out to people in Ukraine. I Um, i I wish that i could be more helpful um but even um now you know being in the united states um it's one of the more heartbreaking things to be watching this from afar again as 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 i did in in 2014 2015 and and um and and not uh, in realizing my own helplessness but at the same time i i know that uh to ukrainians now any demonstration of support from the West is very important even to uh, you know, to boost their morale and to give them more confidence um, in, in what's to come. Well Elena, Lennon, we thank you for
0: talking with us and, and we hope that your family and friends stay safe in Ukraine. Elena again is an adjunct professor of political science and national security at the University of New Haven. We thank you for your time today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, Connecticut's congressional delegation has condemned Russia's attacks on Ukraine coming up Monday, where we live. Congressman Jim Himes will join us. And coming up after the break, we pivot to an issue here at home, a volunteer shortage impacting local fire departments. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Seven out of ten fire departments nationwide are all volunteer. And volunteers make up 83% of Connecticut's firefighters. And some of those local towns that rely on them are facing volunteer shortages. Do you or someone you know work in the fire department where you live? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us now on Zoom is Scott Esquit. He's Director of Fire Policy Procedure and Training Content for Lexapol, which is a company that provides policy training and wellness resources for public safety agencies nationwide. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. I understand you've been a uh, part of volunteer fire departments since the 80s. Uh, The Hartford Current here locally reported, uh, I believe back in December, that the Southington, Connecticut Fire Department had posted on Facebook, quote, the majority of fire departments throughout Connecticut, including here in Southington, are experiencing a volunteer shortage. So is this similar to what um, departments are seeing nationwide? And what are some of the factors, Scott?
3: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely a nationwide issue. There are pockets of departments that, that have made out well and still have good retention uh, and good recruiting. Uh, but, yeah, the majority of volunteer departments do have problems. And it it, it stems from a number of, of factors. Uh, you know, many of them are simply the the shift in the demographics of a community. Uh, you have uh, where you historically had uh, a significant uh part of the population that was in town uh, and remained in town and worked in town and lived in town that's no longer the case they're out of town the majority of the day and uh, when they're back home it's tough to find the time to contribute to a volunteer fire organization and a significant part of that time is the initial training uh, which can scare a lot of uh, potential uh, you know, really great recruits and great members. So for example, in New Jersey, uh, and I can't believe that it's too far different in Connecticut, uh, in New Jersey, it's a minimum of 140 hours for uh, training for what's called Firefighter One. Uh, that's really tough to get that kind of time commitment out of people. Uh, so that is a factor as well. So I'd say those, those are, are, are the two significant ones um, that I see.
0: So, would you say that this was something that was being seen even before the pandemic, when we were seeing now so many uh, industries and sectors dealing with shortages, Scott?
3: Oh yes, this was. Uh, this is a problem that uh, we we saw. Yeah, some departments saw it in the in the in the nineties and in the eighties. Um, th- the interesting thing about the pandemic, though, speaking for for uh, one of the departments I belong to in New Jersey, is that. The pandemic created an advantage for us uh, in that a lot of uh, people in town who were of, of the right age and the right mindset uh, who were commuting into New York no longer were doing that. Um, they were now home 24 seven and they were looking for the ability to do something uh, and contribute so we ended up getting a, a pretty good percentage of new members during the pandemic. Now, what happens afterwards as people start going back to work, we'll we'll have to see what happens.
0: Mm. Joining us now is Connecticut resident Dave Lampart, who's a volunteer firefighter in Woodbury, also the town emergency management director. Dave, welcome to the show. Good morning. Now, you put this issue on our radar. Uh, So how does one become a volunteer firefighter in your town? What are you seeing in Woodbury?
1: Well, in Woodbury, we're, we're still grateful and very lucky that that uh we do have uh, a good membership um but you know you look around you and it's 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 not so good um you know we have a good officer corps um we, we try to grab um young people as they're coming out of high school to join uh it's it's not like when i joined in 1980 um you were able to do everything as a 16 year old and now it's 18. And again, the time commitment is is really tough.
0: When we, when we say volunteer firefighter, you know, are there misconceptions that you want to address? People may uh, think about the types of training a volunteer firefighter would get versus a career firefighter, uh, something that Scott brought up, the amount of the sheer amount of hours needed uh, in this uh, position.
1: Right. It's hard to, to tell someone coming through the door, we'd love to have you, but... Um, You know, for the next three months, two nights a week and on a Saturday, um, you're going to be consumed with with taking fire one. So so it's tough. It's it's if you can get past that part of it. Well, you probably have a good member.
0: Mm. You said you've been lucky in Woodbury. So tell me about uh, the volunteer firefighters in your town. Uh, Scott had mentioned demographics have been changing in communities, so you're not seeing, uh, I guess, even uh, generations of families uh, volunteering in the way that they used to. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. Um, traditionally, you, you got new members because their father or mother was in the department. Uh, so traditionally, you would join. Um, You don't see that as much, and again, it's because people just don't have the time. Um, In Woodbury, we're very lucky. We have people in public works that can leave work during the day when there's an emergency. Um, We do have people that work from home. Um, The the roster was, like Scott said, better during the pandemic um, because people were working from home, so they were able to come out a little more. You know, they do have incentives, a per call, which is only $10. But I always tell people, if you're going to join, you shouldn't be joining for, you know, if you're going to join the volunteer, then the money shouldn't mean anything anyway. And $10 doesn't go far, as you know. But um, it's just little things you try to, you know, entice people to to join you. And once they do, they usually end up very well, uh, as far as firefighters and dedicated, because, uh, you know, the gratification you get helping people.
0: Right, Scott, I wanted to hear uh, your response to that. And, you know David mentioned incentives, you know, what departments are trying uh, to get people uh, to volunteer because when there's an emergency, you need people. Mm-hmm.
3: yeah, well, you know dave right if if you are joining a volunteer organization, um, the the incentives that you get they're generally not going to be what attracts you. What attracts you is is the service, the um, the social fabric of the organization that you're part in the community um, and and the anything else is kind of uh, you know icing on the cake. Uh, so the benefits like the paper call that, that Dave's department has, uh, we have uh, what's called LOSAP, which is a reti- basically a retirement fund. That the state runs, so that when we are um, uh, all of our hours are marked, and those hours translate into uh, what, what's a basically retirement fund, and, the, and that fund uh, comes back to us when we when we leave the service. Uh, there are also departments or, or t- that have you know uh, connected or uh, coordinated with their town to provide. Uh, well, another incentive that we have is you know no charge for any recreation activities. So if we register our one of our children for so, you know the soccer league, it's free. Um, other towns have uh, real estate abatement programs for volunteers. So there are a myriad of programs out there. Um, but like I said, your first draw is going to be the, the level of the volunteerism, that aspect of it. Everything else is, is gravy. Mm-hmm.
0: You're hearing Scott Esquit here on Where We Live, Director of Fire Policy Procedure and Training Content for Lexapol, which provides policy training and other resources for public safety agencies nationwide as we talk about volunteer shortages in our state and across the country impacting volunteer fire departments. Um, If you're noticing this in your town, if you're a member of the volunteer fire department, we'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live uh dave lampert uh, you mentioned um, you know the what you get out of uh, volunteering in your community but can you talk more about you know what someone really needs to become a volunteer fighter fighter you know the people that are showing up uh, when uh, there are emergencies you know what you need like the physical constitution also um, you know the, how you can um, deal with some of the emotional things that you see um, when you respond as well
1: well um you know there's nothing worse than than seeing someone in their time of need and you're there to help but when they come to thank you a week later you know it makes it all it gives you more passion i'm gonna keep doing this you know it's uh it's a lot of things and this is i was asked three years ago to to teach a an elective at a private school in connecticut a through k-12 school um which is uh, introduction to emergency services and in that class alone we had uh, two that went off to become EMTs and I have one that's um, a firefighter uh, in the junior corps as well as um, he as a matter of fact just passed his EMT course so you, you know it, it's it's a great opportunity to reach out to kids in high school and um, and, and help them along with it, with, with this passion you know to help to help the public, and it uh, that seems to be working.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that that your class, Introductory to Emergency Services, uh, joining us now is one of your students on the phone with us. Owen Kavanaugh, part of the Junior Firefighter Program at the Brookfield, Connecticut Volunteer Fire Department, Candlewood Company. Owen, welcome to the show. Good morning. So, tell us what got you interested in, in volunteer firefighting.
4: Um, It was mostly Dave Lampard's class, actually. You know, one day we were picking electives at school, and uh, emergency service was one of the options. And I wasn't gonna choose it, I was actually gonna do a study hall. One of my friends just convinced me, and I went to the class and I started getting interested. Um, I started looking around the area for volunteer fire departments that I could possibly join. And uh, I looked at Brookfield, and then maybe a month or so later I was I was a member of the junior program there the department.
0: Mm. What's your reaction from your peers uh, to uh, the fact that you're a junior firefighter? And is there interest from other people your age when you talk to them about it?
4: Um, A lot of my peers, they're very impressed um, by it. Uh, I guess a lot of them think like, oh, wow, it's something like I would never possibly do. So I feel like a lot of people commend me for it, especially me doing a lot of work my certifications, get my firefighter one, pass my EMT certification. Um, it's a lot of work. Um, so a lot of people are very surprised by it.
0: Mm. Um,
4: but when you looked uh, at your
0: I've peers, are you one of the few that actually that does this?
4: Um, yeah, outside of the fire department, my friends there. Um, I'm, I'm the only person in my friend group who actually does this, this work of my town and emergency services in general.
0: So that does sound like a lot of work. All the training and the certification uh, that you need to complete. So how do you do it, and also handle your studies, Owen?
4: Uh, very carefully. Um, <laughs> I, I plan like what days I will uh, you know, do school work and work in my EMC certification, my firefighter certifications. Um, I plan certain times during the day where I'll study. You know, I'll study for school and I'll study for the fire department. Um, a lot of times I can get carried away, with you know, studying fire department and stuff and it might fall behind in school, but I try very not hard to not let that happen.
0: <laughs> it sounds like you've found a passion. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about what it's like to respond to emergencies in Brookfield and how it makes you feel.
4: It's great because um, a lot of times you go into calls where somebody needs help with something and whenever you actually get there and you do something at the scene to help that person, you know, you feel really good about it. And Mm -hmm. it, you know, gives you a new perspective on life. You know, you feel pretty good about yourself and you feel like you're actually helping your community. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I enjoy that very much.
0: And so tell us about your future plans once you complete high school. You're gonna stick with this, Owen?
4: Oh yeah, I'm totally gonna stick with this. Um, I'm gonna stick with my volunteer department. Um, I'm planning on hopefully becoming a career fireman i um, somewhere in Connecticut. Um, I just passed my EMT course. I actually got my uh, results saying I was nationally certified at 8 o'clock this morning. Um, so I'm hopefully going to become a career fireman. Uh, I might start working as an EMT or an ambulance department um, soon after high school. And I'll try to transfer over to the fire department a few years after.
0: Well, congratulations yeah, to you, problem. Owen. Thank you. <laughs> um, before we head to break, I just wanted to get Dave Lampert to respond to what Owen shared. Obviously, you know him. He's one of your students. Uh, uh, just talking about you know, his plans to turn into a career firefighter. I mean, that sounds like it's great news, but it sounds like you still need volunteers to help with volunteer firefighting as well.
1: Yeah, it's great. Uh, and as Owen said that he even if he goes career he'd still also like to volunteer um with his spare time after his studies um i'm very proud of him i know the school's very proud of him and uh you know he's uh it's getting the the young people to to feel the passion and um well as you can hear from owen that um that's this is this is a positive thing
0: Uh, Dave, before we let you go, maybe you could tell me just a little bit more about your students, because when people think about firefighting, they often think about it as a male dominated uh, profession. And so, you know, have there been strides to attract uh, more girls and women into into the firefighting force?
1: Actually, the my class has grown to 22 students and it's uh, pretty split. If anything, there's probably a few more females in it um the chief of my department is a female and i have to say she's probably one of the best chiefs well no, she definitely is the best <laughs> chief i've ever uh, had a deal with um so you know it's not a male dominated field anymore and uh, which is good it's uh, everybody can do it feel the That's passion it.
0: That's good to hear. Thank you, Dave Lampert, for joining us here on Where We Live, again, a volunteer firefighter in Woodbury and the town emergency management director. And Owen Cavanaugh joined us on the phone, uh, one of his students and uh, a junior firefighter in Brookfield, Connecticut's volunteer fire department. Thank you, Owen. We're going to continue talking about uh, firefighting uh, with our guest, Scott Esquit. You can also join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live we This is where we live on connecticut public radio i'm lucy nalpa we're talking about the volunteer about volunteer firefighting as departments in connecticut and across the country deal with volunteer shortages with us on zoom is scott esquit director of fire policy and re, fire po- and policy and training content for lexapol that's a company that provides policy training and wellness resources for public safety agencies nationwide. You can join us too 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Scott can we talk about retention because something that Dave had shared you know with Owen it sounds it sounds great that they've uh, recruited him and he wants to become a career firefighter and then on the side also volunteer but that's a lot of time and commitment and so can you talk about retention when we look at fire departments around the country?
3: Sure Um, and when we were talking earlier, we were really just talking about what it takes to, to become a, a firefighter. Okay, uh, to get what's called firefighter one. To there's also training requirements moving forward, so uh, you really do have to have a commitment and, and a passion for the profession. Uh, it, there's really, you know, that volunteer firefighters and career firefighters do the same thing when they're responding to a call. Um, and to train uh, your volunteer corps to a lower level uh, is only increasing risk and, and creating trouble for them. Uh, and you're not being responsible for them. So there's a, a responsibility that a department has, volunteer or career, for ongoing training. So the commitment for that is significant. Depending on the state you're in, there are also state laws and regulations that that say, for example, in New Jersey, uh, if you want to go up uh, into the officer corps, work your way up to chief, you have to have certain other qualifications uh, and and certificates in order to do uh, to do that job. So that plays into retention. Um, the other thing that plays into retention is which I think is is very significant is a recognition of generational differences. So what may have attracted uh, a boomer to the position is going to be very different as as to what would, uh, and and what keeps the, you know, the the baby boomer in, in the job uh, is going to be very different for, you know, a Gen Xer um, or a millennial and how they react to what would be called, let's say, more traditional roles of authority uh, can turn them away uh, or you can appreciate what those differences may may be and and help to keep them in by communicating in different ways, uh, by um, changing some behaviors that make sure that, you know, let's say a, a Gen X or a millennial uh, might be more um, uh, receptive to uh, the different ways of, of bringing them into the department and bringing them into different job responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that that has uh, that's played a significant part in retention as well.
0: Sounds like you're also talking about just workplace culture in general and adapting uh, to the the different generations who are interested in uh, volunteer firefighting. Scott, can you talk about the fire service culture and you know how that has changed over the years? Mm-hmm. Or does there is there more work that needs to be done?
3: Oh well, there's always more work that needs <laughs> to be done. Um, and I, I, you know, I it, it's funny. I'm not a big fan of, of firefighter culture. Um, uh, because that's a, that's a heavy term. Uh, it brings in a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. It groups you into a, into one, you know, one, one mass of, of different, <coughs> different ideas. But I prefer to focus on is behavior. So if I have, uh, firefighters who I've attracted in and, um, I'm providing them with a good environment that is objective, That's uh, where their behaviors are based on an established policies and procedures. um, I've got a better chance of retaining them and letting them, you know, let them feel that they're part of uh, of an organization that is run um, fairly for everybody that is as safe as possible that provides for training that's based on on a policy or a procedure that's consistent uh and um and allows them to to do their best work uh rather than a, an organization that you know has no real um set of set of rules basically so once you're starting to base uh your fire station or your fire service on the on behaviors rather than on a, a nebulous culture uh, it becomes a lot easier to uh, to recruit. It becomes a lot easier to retain, and it helps provide an environment that, as I said, is is hopefully um, minimizes risk for for your members.
0: Pick up on what Dave shared with us about even the class uh, for introductory to emergency services. He says that it's pretty split between uh, young men and, and women. And I'm wondering if, if that's what we're seeing in fire departments around the country as we talk about how um, the, the rules and expectations within these departments uh, have been evolving.
3: I, uh, well, the, the percentages are still, you know, it's, it's, it's a male profession. Uh, but that's changing, and all for the better. So uh, as, as Dave points out, his his chief is a woman, uh, I, I through through my time in the service, and Dave and I both joined at the same time, uh, through my time in the service, I've had more and more and more interaction with uh, with with women, uh, and, and also minorities, uh, who are part of the service. And uh, like, all, and as I said, all to the benefit of the service. So it's increasing. Uh, it's it's great to see that a lot of of the women who have joined have have gone up into leadership roles uh, and and really flourished in those roles and, and provided great great uh, leadership to us. So it's uh, it's accepted. Uh, if you're not accepting it, then uh, there's a problem that needs to be addressed within the Department. Um, But it's uh, it's it's a fact of life. And as I said, all to the better for the service.
0: You're hearing Scott Esquit here on Where We Live, again, Director of Fire Policy and Training Content for Lexapol. Lexapol providing policy training and wellness resources for public safety agencies nationwide. And so let's talk about, you know, just the darker side of being an emergency responder, uh, Scott. Um, We think about, you know, the heavy toll that it takes on responders from what they are seen and um, on the job. And I'm just wondering if you can talk about, you know, mental health resources and how to help them because you want to ret- retain these people doing this important work.
3: Yeah, the the the, I, the most important, there, there are two important points when it comes to uh, behavioral health in the fire service. One is to know exactly where your resources are, like you just mentioned. Um, you have to know what you can access. Number two, make sure that you're proactive about it. So um, your your department should have a, a post-traumatic stress policy that lists out um, all of the resources that are available. And when an officer would uh, be in a position to uh, offer those resources, uh, whether it's simply by offering it and, and mentioning it to the, the crew or making it mandatory that they attend a, uh, a session after a traumatic event. Um, so the example that I I've used is, is that while I was chief, I had a suicide of one of my members uh, and um, I and the other chiefs uh, immediately put into into uh, play are uh, post-traumatic stress protocols, uh, so that we had the resources available. We offered sessions. Uh, we wanted to keep an eye on everybody, make sure that they all had access to talk to somebody if they needed to, uh, and and try to get everybody through it by by making sure the resources were there. Uh, so those are the two most important uh, most important things: be proactive and know where all the resources are.
0: When we talk about behavioral health and who's responding, what has been the toll during the pandemic on volunteer fire departments? It's uh,
3: it, it, it was significant um, because you really had to change the way you do business. Uh, so new protocols came into play. Uh, you're getting, um, you know, you're getting a call and the dispatch center is is also attaching another message that says, you know, COVID household, uh, or you know, states COVID free. Uh, and in any event, you couldn't be sure uh, earlier in the in the pandemic, so you had to respond the same way to everybody. Um, you are uh, worried about your family. You're worried about your exposure, uh, and. Uh, you had to make sure that you weren't doing anything that would expose anybody else that you were treating. So, uh, you know, for example, our department runs EMS and fire. So our EMS volunteers um, had to change up their protocols in terms of how they responded. It created a, uh, and then there was all social activity at the firehouse ceased. So that aspect of volunteer firefighting, the, the social fabric of it um, ceased to be. And um, that also had an impact because you couldn't stay at the station after a call to discuss it, to, um, to to kind of debrief. And that's a really important part of what we do. And that was being cut out as well. So the level of stress increased significantly. Um, and we uh, we had to just deal with it because we had to keep responding.
0: Well, it's been interesting to hear about um, the work of volunteer firefighters, again, facing volunteer shortages nationwide, including in our state. This sounds like a, a follow-up uh, a few months from now. Scott Esquit, thank you for your time today, Director of Fire Policy Procedure and Training Content for Lexapol. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Special thanks to Katie Tolarski uh, our tech director today. I'm Lucy Naututhanschel. Have a great weekend.